If you would, remain standing and let's open up our Bibles. For context, we're going to jump back just a little bit. So if you would open your Bible to Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. That's Roman 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their heart and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Please be seated. The past few weeks, Casey's done a fantastic job taking us through the end of Romans chapter 1. We've seen Paul give his greetings. We've seen him express his desire to preach the gospel to those in Rome. And he pro proudly proclaims that he is unashamed of the gospel. Where he writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. There is real power in the gospel. And we're not thinking this in the sense of our words have power or somehow we give power to the gospel. It's God's power unto salvation. It has the power to raise the dead to life. It has the power to change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Paul's not preaching some newfangled philosophy. It's not some get-rich-quick scheme, as people would like to think. It's not some way to feel better about yourself. It is the very power of God for salvation. So it's interesting that after declaring this power that, the, that there's power in the gospel. He does not immediately jump to God's love or his grace or his mercy, but he jumps to God's wrath. He jumps to God's justice. He doesn't start with some flowery message about God being nothing but love. He starts with God's holiness and justice and a very hard truth that should scare us, that we are all without excuse. We have all exchanged the truth about God for lies. We serve the creature rather than the creator. And Paul goes on to give us a long list of these sins, which are detestable to God. Homosexuality, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, insolence, haughtiness, children, disobeying your parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, and I'm sure I left some out. Paul begins his letter with a very simple truth that if you practice these things, you deserve to die. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death. You deserve the eternal divine wrath of a holy God because of who that God is. As I was preparing for this week, I, I thought a lot about what would modern evangelicals say if Paul was here today preaching this message? Would they say to him, Paul, you talk way too much about sin. You, you just beat up on unbelievers. No one will respond if you make them feel guilty. Would they tell him just to tell people that Jesus died just because he loves you? Would they tell him that Jesus only wants some kind of relationship with you? Or would they give the weak gospel to say that we have a weak, powerless God that knocks on the doors of our hearts and just begs us to come to him? That isn't what Paul does. He spends nearly three chapters at the beginning of Romans talking about God's wrath. And the reason that he does this is because a gospel that doesn't talk about sin isn't the gospel. Say that again. A gospel that doesn't talk about sin is no gospel at all. What need would we have of a Savior if we have not transgressed a holy God? Gospel without sin is just so much less sweet if we don't recognize our need for it. So Paul, in chapter 1, had gone through these egregious sins, but now he turns to a group of people who, in his mind, is sitting there saying, 
Paul, amen, I agree with you. Thank goodness that's not me. And he takes away their excuse. He's thinking of the pious Jews or the moralists of the time. Jesus spoke of men like this in the parable of the tax collector in Luke 18. He said, he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you know anything about the history of the time, tax collectors worked for Rome. They cheated, they lied, they stole, and most of all, the Jews believed that they were just with, just holding down the Jewish people, that they were turncoats, whereas the Pharisees were well-respected men of religion. So these two men go in to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So Paul turns his sight on these moralistic men. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Every man who judges others for their sin is condemned themselves. You notice in this verse, God, God's justice isn't even brought up here. God's standard isn't brought up. He uses these righteous men, he uses their own standard and, and basically says, you that goes out and says, thank goodness I'm not like this guy that over here, you do the same thing. They know that the actions described in chapter one are evil, sinful, and wrong. And in judging others, they admit that there is some moral standard for us. They admit that they judge for a reason. They admit to a moral law. And if there is a moral law, there is a moral law giver. And if there is a moral law giver that has given us law, then judgment is right and necessary for us. The problem is that man can't even live up to their own moral standards, let alone God's standard of perfect righteousness. How easy is it for the high-minded moralist to see the sins of others and think that they are somehow better? Later on in the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you, not be, ju or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you, pro you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you not see the speck in your own... Uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. 
Paul, within just this single verse, hammers them, not on God's moral standard, but on their own seemingly righteous moral standard that they have. And they can't even live up to that. Paul continues in verses 2 and 3 of our text and says, we know that we know. It's, it's clear. It's not something we are learning now. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He points to these men and says, you, you know God's judgment is coming. And if God is just, then he has to punish sin. From the beginning of creation, God has held to a perfect standard of righteousness. And we mere humans, created from the dust of the earth, given the very breath of life, created in his image, have disobeyed that creator. This should be terrifying, the fact that God rightly brings his judgment on people. The judgment rightly falls on those who sin against the holy God. Because who are these moralistic men to think that somehow they will escape judgment? Everything that God does by definition and by his very nature is right and happens according to the truth. The psalmist in Psalm 9 wrote, For you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne, given righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Everything God does is right and good because of who God is. So we shouldn't be surprised when we hear that the Lord's judgment rightly falls on all of mankind. Each and every one of us have sinned and fallen into the hands of a holy and perfectly righteous God. Jesus, again in the Sermon on the Mount, wrote, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. This is where the moralist would say, amen. Good thing I'm not a murderer. But Jesus goes on, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Skip ahead a bit. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to, that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. If there is a moral law and a moral lawgiver, then there must be judgment for the transgressing of that law. Paul goes on in verses 4 and 5. He asks another question. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? If you woke up this morning, you have experienced God's kindness. If you have breath in your lungs right now, you have experienced his forbearance. If you are not immediately struck dead at the first thought of sin, you have experienced his patience. Because God would be well within his rights to crush every single one of us with his wrath. He would be right to destroy everything at the very first sinful thought. He'd be right to wipe out the entirety of his creation. And he could, with a word, wipe out his creation. The fact that he doesn't is only due to the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. And this is very important to look at because this isn't God saying, you're not going to be punished for sin. Because God is just, he must punish sin. It is God temporarily withholding that why? So that some may come to repentance. And this is where we can get in we can get in trouble because to think anything different than God willingly withholding his wrath turns God into something he's not. He turn, turns God into a weak thing. Because who can withhold God's wrath but God himself. Why did Adam and Eve not fall down dead in the garden? Why did God save Noah and his family? Why did he let Moses live? Why did David not fall down dead after committing adultery and murder? Look at Paul. Why, would, why was Paul even alive at this point to write this letter? is only because of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. That's the only reason. And the only reason to withhold it, it has a purpose. It's because of God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How easy it is to take that for granted. We lay our heads down at night and we expect to wake up in the morning. We breathe out expecting the next breath to come. How many people have at one point in time says, I'll worry, about, I'll worry about getting right with God at a later date? 
But these things aren't promised to us. This, mor- this morning may be the last morning we wake up. This very breath could be my last. If we continue on a little further in 2 Peter, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 19 point, paints a very different picture of Jesus. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped with, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's God's kindness and forbearance that we have even one more day to find repentance. There's a time coming when every man will be held account for every deed, every word, every thought. And as we've seen, not one of us has an excuse. So why does Paul start with sin? Why spend three chapters of this letter on sin and on God's wrath? It's because sin is a critical part of the gospel. Without sin, we have no need of a savior. So this is where the gospel must start every time we preach it. Each and every one of us has sinned against our creator. If there's anyone here that would like to tell me that you haven't sinned, I will call you a liar. Actually, I'll point you to 1 John, where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And what does a just God do about our sin? Can a perfectly just God just say it's no big deal and let it slide? A perfectly just God must punish our sins. And that punishment is death, and each and every one of us deserve it. You can't sit back and say, but look at all the good I've done, because Paul's actually going to cover this in chapter 3, where it says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throats an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. None are good, no, not one. If you know me, I'm going to make you go through my favorite chapter of the Bible again. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in your sin and trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we have all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, you'll hear a lot of evangelicals say, Blake, that's too harsh. You only need to preach about love and God's kindness. No one will enter back into this room if you preach that way. And I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, then the kindest and most loving thing anyone in this world will ever tell you is you are dead in your sins. You're storing up the very wrath of God for yourself. And there's no way, there is absolutely no way that you can ever be good enough to fix that. The fact that God has not struck you dead yet is proof of his loving kindness, his forbearance, his patience with us. If we continue on in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I find this portion of text so amazing. Because knowing our sin, knowing our cosmic treason, knowing the deadness of our hearts, God sends his only son to willingly take our punishment for us. Jesus put on flesh, he condescended, being both fully God and fully man, he did what none of us could do. He lived a perfect life of perfect submission and obedience to the Father. And then he went willingly to the cross to die on our behalf. See, this forbearance, this, this withholding of judgment for a time does not mean that God just said, I'm not going to punish sin. No, our sin is punished. If you are a believer, Christ willingly laid down his life to take that punishment. 
He went willingly to, cro- to, to die on the cross. And the Father poured out the fullness of his wrath on his own son. Then three days later, he rose from the dead. About 40 days after that, he ascended to the heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He did all of this for men and women that were in open rebellion with him. See, you could, you could never live up to God's standard of righteousness. But thankfully, Christ did. And it's his own righteousness that he imputes to us. It's not our own works. It's the work of God. Scripture says that if you you'll just repent and believe. Just repent and believe. Recognize your sin. This is why sin is so critical to the gospel because how do you repent of something you don't know of? If you're here today and you've already placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, I would remind you that we have the gospel. We have the very power of God for salvation. It can be too easy for us at times to look outside of these doors and just wag our finger at the sin that we see. It's easy for us to have long discussions about how we hate things like abortion or hate homosexuality or transgenderism or racism or social justice or whatever you want to name. It's easy for us to see sin, to hate it and call it sin, and then just sit back and say, thank goodness I'm not like them. Because but for the grace of God, you would be like them. But for the completed work of Christ, I would be like them. But for someone sharing the gospel, loving you enough to share the gospel, we would be like them. We have the very power of God for salvation right in the gospel. We have the answer to sin in this world. If you want to see an end to abortion, go preach the gospel. If you want to see an end to all these horrible sexual sins we see in this world, go preach the gospel. If you want to see an end to racism, go preach the gospel. If you want to see an end to injustice in the world, go preach the gospel. There is nothing else. Why? Because before Christ, you're dead in your sin. You don't seek after God. You don't want these things. H.B. Charles said a few weeks ago, our job is not to scream into the darkness. Our job as believers is to turn on the light. And we have the light. If we truly believe that sin separates us from a holy God, if we truly believe that before Christ we're dead in our sins, if we truly believe that we're slaves to sin and the gospel is the power of God for salvation, why don't we share it? If we really believe these things, then how could we keep the gospel to ourselves? It's my prayer that we would be a church 
that would have a burning desire to share the gospel everywhere we go. That when we see sin in the world, yes, call it out, but follow it up with the cure. See sin in the world and preach the gospel. It's my prayer that we would never take God's kindness, his forbearance for granted, that while we have breath, that will we be a church that preaches the gospel. And as, as I said earlier, if this is the first time you're hearing this, if you're not sure of your salvation, Casey or I would love to chat with you. But the number one thing is repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Recognize sin for what it is, which is just cosmic treason against our creator. And repent and believe. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for your word, Lord, for the, for the boldness um, of Paul's preaching and teaching, um, for your kindness and forbearance with us, Lord, that when we, while we were still sinners, you saved us. Lord, I pray that you would give us an unquenchable thirst for your word and a burning desire to share it with others, Lord. There is no other way for salvation, Lord. And if we truly, truly believe what your word says, if we have the cure for sin in this world, we wouldn't withhold it from others, Lord. We thank you for your grace and mercy that we don't deserve, Lord. Please continue to bless this time of worship. Convict us of our sins. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.